Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today, we are joined by John Hartley. Dear listeners, have you ever wanted to feel terrible about how little you have accomplished in your life? Well, I have great news. You can now read John Hartley's CV at at jonathanhartley.net. Not only is he a PhD student, at Stanford in economics, but he also has his master's of public policy from Harvard Kennedy University, his MBA from the Wharton School of Business and the University of Pennsylvania, a bachelor's in mathematics and economics with honors at the University of Chicago, and he's a senior fellow at the McDonald's Larrier Institute and at the Hoover Institute. He's a research associate. Oh, also, he's been at the Bank of Canada, the Foundation for the Research on Equal Opportunity, the Committee on Capital Markets Regulation, the Harvard Center for International Development and Growth Lab, and the World Bank and the U.S. Congress uh, Joint Economic Committee and the Goldman Sachs Asset Management Team, and he's contributed for Forbes and the Huffington Post. He's also been associated at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, Goldman Sachs Asset Management as an analyst, and even the Dallas Cowboy Football Club as an analyst. And this is only about, I don't know, one third of his CV. So um, there you go, guys. Uh, Be an overachiever like good old John. And welcome to the podcast. Maybe, I don't know, maybe that will one day appear on the CV, you know, a guest on the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. That's no small thing. Of course. uh, What an honor to be here. Uh, (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Uh, uh, A real honor to be on. Well, you were uh, recommended by one of the listeners as uh, somebody who thinks very clearly about the issues of uh, zoning and land use. I know you've recently published some work on that. Um, I scrolled through a number of pages, saw a bunch of awesome, very useful tables, which I'm certain took an extraordinarily long time to assemble. Um, So yeah, I figured you could uh, lay out what exactly is the problem with the typical American zoning and uh, land use landscape and um, what kind of costs are those putting on the public on economic growth and on people who seek to, say, move into an area that they desire to live in? Sure. So it's a great question and it's very, very timely. And I think where you need to start is uh, certainly if you're living in the U.S., you need to look at your coastal real estate markets, uh, you know, in general market set have a lot of, you know, great high paying jobs and careers. Uh, You know, these are places like Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, DC, places like in California, like San Francisco, Los Angeles. And what do they have in common? You know, housing has become very, very expensive there. And at the same time, uh, there's been very, very little growth in housing supply. Uh, largely since uh, the 1970s or so, um, but uh, in part uh, that is uh, attributable to um, zoning laws that were passed largely in the uh, beginning of the 1920s, largely, um, and, and there were a few um, uh, Supreme Court cases that sort of further enabled this, uh, like Euclid versus Ambler, uh, which is sort of the, the most famous one. Um, but a lot of those changes, you know, if, if you go back in time in, in history, zoning is a relatively new uh, phenomenon in, in human history. And it sort of uh, started um, out, you know, or was exported out of uh, Germany uh, and, and came to the U.S. Uh, uh, or started in Germany in the late 
uh, 1800s and sort of was exported uh, to the U.S. in the early 20th century. But, you know, previously, um, before you had things like, you know, zoning boards, zoning authorities, things of that nature, you know, th these sorts of disputes uh, were, were resolved by courts. And, uh, you know, if, if you didn't like the fact that somebody was, um, you know, building, uh, you know, something next to you or, or you know, if you're, uh, you know, you don't like the fact that, uh, you know, they're building a, a saloon next to your house, you know, you could sue them in, in court and, uh, and, and, you know, the judge would, uh, would resolve that, um, uh, that, that particular matter um, if, if there was, you know, a case to be made. What sort of happened uh, with zoning in, in you know, largely the 1920s? This is actually when Herbert Hoover, uh, you know, the president was was the Secretary of Commerce. Um, so this is in the sort of uh, Coolidge-Harding uh, era. Um, uh, is that uh, you know zoning uh, started uh, to get passed uh, very rapidly uh, across the nation and. Um, and, and so what happened is you had the development of, you know, zoning plans, uh, you know, so the development of this whole concept of urban planning um, and, and this whole concept of, of Euclidean zoning um, took hold. And then, you know, it was uh, something that sort of started uh, around that time, arguably, uh, and, and this is totally separate from racial zoning, something that was, uh, you know, banned by the Supreme Court in 1917, sort, sort of a very different concept of, uh, you know, racial segregated zoning, you know, uh, whites and blacks can only live in certain neighborhoods, for example, uh, you know, that, that was sort of racial zoning, which ended in 1917. Um, th this was very much developed in response to, uh, you know, widely increasing amounts of immigration. Um, it was around the same time that, uh, that the current immigration system as, as we know it, uh, uh, came into being, um, and, and so that there, there are a number of things that, that were happening all in, in the 1920s, even though uh, we think of the 1920s as this very prosperous time, there was a lot uh, changing uh, in, in, in the world. Um, and, and there was a lot in the U.S. Uh, in particular, um, there was a lot going on in terms of um, uh, in, in terms of sort of the, the beginning of policies that, that would prevent um, you know, people from coming into neighborhoods, you know, whether it was the people coming from outside the U.S., uh, you know, the, the creation of, of sort of the modern immigration system as we know, it, it's full concept of having passports um, and, and whether or not you're allowed into a country, that along with zoning, whether or not you can actually build uh, uh, buildings and so forth, build housing, um, uh, that uh, all came in around the same time. And, and so, you fast forward about half a century later, and a lot of these land use regulations really start to bite and and, and start to uh, constrain the growth of housing. And and then what happens is uh, you don't get new housing that's built in these highly highly productive areas in the coast um, because you have these sort of very strange different types of rules. Um, the zoning manifests itself in different ways. You look at places like Washington D.C. You have height limits, height constraints. You can't build anything taller than the Washington Monument. In parts of San Francisco, you can only, uh, uh, in, in many parts of, of San Francisco proper, you can't build anything taller than uh, you know, three or four, uh, uh, three or four stories. So these are height restrictions. In places like Connecticut, for example, you have things like 
minimum lot sizes. Like you can't build anything um, uh, uh, less than say, you know, two, uh, uh, two acres, you know, two acres only. Um, you, know, you, you couldn't uh, divide up uh, a plot of land and, and have, you know, four half acre uh, plots and four houses on, on, a, on, a, on what uh, must be a two acre plot according to the zoning plan. So it, it can manifest itself in very different ways. But the, the net result of all of this is largely to, uh, to prevent the further uh, growth of, of, of new housing. And as a result, you know, because you, know, you go back to your you know, economics 101, you know, you have supply and demand. When you constrain the supply of housing, uh, you know, prices go up uh, as you know, uh, demand increases. If you have very inelastic supply uh, uh, that, uh, that, that doesn't uh, uh, respond to increases in demand, you have a very vertical supply curve and, uh, and and as more people you know come to your city because there's some you know agglomeration there of say tech jobs and the bay area and san francisco or or uh, agglomeration of you know uh, finance or or fashion jobs in new york or uh you know uh, political jobs in dc or or uh you know entertainment media jobs in in uh, in los angeles um, you know, th there's all sorts of reasons to want to move to these places, but the problem is uh, that uh, that new housing doesn't get built, and so it makes things extremely expensive. Uh, and 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 as a result, um, it, it becomes increasingly harder for those on the lower end of the income distribution, say you know those in you know, Ohio or Pennsylvania, uh, to move to these places uh, because you know it, it's very difficult for the lower income person from say Ohio or Pennsylvania. Uh, to you know, afford a uh, say a four thousand dollar a month apartment in San Francisco or, or or New York, which is sort of you know the the entry uh, entry level in some respects, you know a, a three thousand four thousand dollar a month apartment um, to even you know start looking for jobs in those sorts of places. So um, it's it's a unfortunate barrier um, to uh, economic mobility. Uh, and prevents people from uh, pursuing opportunity, and that, that's uh, that's the big issue. Uh, and, and housing is so expensive, you know. It, it just, uh, I mean, th there's other effects too. You know, you could you could argue that uh, uh, that uh, you know it prevents the development of families, you know, because the cost of living is so high, and and, and makes uh, you know the cost of starting a family so difficult. To, in, in terms of the broader economic impact, you know, per your original question, there's a lot of different estimates. I mean, some people say that if you were to you relax all zoning in, in the U.S. to the level of say Houston, which is very little zoning, that you'd see, you know, uh, GDP grow by 36 uh, percent, and that's maybe a well, wow. <laughs> it's a very high estimate. Uh, but there, there's other uh, studies that um, that that particular uh, study is a, a study by uh, two economists in uh, Cheng Tai She and, and Enrico Moretti, uh, and the name of the paper is Housing Constraints and Spatial Misallocation. Um, but there's there's other papers that uh, that find um, a more modest, uh, uh, that there will be more modest effects of, of uh, relaxing uh, uh, land use regulations. Yeah, I seem to remember, I think it was Cato put out a paper that estimated it as somewhere near the GDP of Mexico, which I thought was a great, uh, great way to describe it. Um, but yeah, so zoning came uh, from the Germans, and the, the Germans are always known for exporting wonderful ideas to the rest of the world. <laughs> um, 
Well, I, yeah. I guess I don't know uh, uh, what your uh, take on various German philosophers are, but uh, they're, oh, well, they're most... very influential in the uh, in the 19th and 20th century. Yeah, you um, know they are. Yep, yep. Um, in a good way, depending on how, how you look at it. So, so it so it sounds like before this, we had courts adjudicating individual decisions. Is there some advantage of having a more rules based system? It seems that. People would have better predictability about uh, the outcome of, of um, you know, if they could build somewhere, they could just look up the rules. They could check with the zoning department instead of having to hope for a favorable judgment. Is that an advantage? I mean, it, do, would, it is, I mean that's got to be on the table, I suppose. Um, yeah. I, I think you know there it's it's you know there's trade-offs with with uh, uh, with, with all these things, and uh, I think with uh, you know uh, I, I think you know at an extreme you know, uh, you know th there are certain reasons uh, clearly why uh, you know you want to have some rules. You know, do you want uh, uh, to have a you know a chemical plant uh, that um, you know could blow up a whole neighborhood? Uh, and potentially right next to uh, you know, residential housing or daycare, you know, uh, uh, you know, but there's uh, certain things I think, you know, just out of, out of safety that you certainly uh, at the very least uh, want, want to have. Um, but then there's, I mean, you know, you could make also some arguments about, you know, aesthetics, for example, you know, and you look at a place, for example, like, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they have very interesting, you know, zoning there. And if you've ever been, I mean, certain parts of Cambridge, Massachusetts, more on the sort of, uh, uh, you know, north of Harvard Square uh, sort of area where, you know, every home is a Victorian home. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and there's like a legal requirement, a zoning requirement that every new home that gets built is built in, in the Victorian style and uh you know if, if you're a fan of uh, you know victorian uh, architecture you know it, it, it looks beautiful um but if you also you know go to these houses you know many of them don't have uh air conditioning or um uh you know many of them don't have uh, washing machines and so forth um but it, it's also you know at some level um you, you know you could also say it's maybe sort of a, a ridiculous thing um to, you know to, to have you know just for uh, uh for some uh kind of, uh, you know, some aesthetic value. So, you know, I think there, there's trade-offs with, with all these things. I, I think that the argument, the, the broad argument is just that, you know, land use regulations have become so, so restrictive that it, it, it truly is uh, making uh, housing unbelievably unaffordable uh, and then it's having uh, real uh, economic and, and social consequences. Um, gotcha. Yeah, the government being the arbiter of style um, not, not, not always great. Um, now, you mentioned that giant cost to the economy. I'm sure there's different ways to measure it. Um, what are the uh, what are the drivers of that large cost? I assume part of it is people are priced out of being able to work in high productivity areas and high productivity jobs. So they have to live at places which they can't afford and then have to settle for something which isn't as productive. Um, part of it could be we're um, channeling a lot of uh, funds to housing when it could be used for more productive uses. It, it could be an investment of some sort, uh, leveraging the productivity of people. Um, I'd be interested to see what uh, what you've seen, what you've found as the largest components of that uh, that loss to the economy. Well, it's a great question. Um, and, and for what it's worth, I, I, so far, I've really 
just tried to measure zoning in sort of my own research um, uh, with, um, with co-authors, uh, Judge Erko and, and, and Jacob Krimmel. And we're just trying to measure zoning. I mean, what's interesting about this topic is that it, it's really not well understood or, or well measured. It, it's, it's only isn't quite, it's, you know, and regulation in general is not very straightforward. Um, it's not like tax policy where you, know, you have a tax rate, uh, you know, of, of course, across different brackets. And so it gets, you know, a little more complicated. Obviously, you have lots of deductions and so forth. So it gets further and further complicated. But at least, you know, with tax policy, you at least have, you know, tax rates, tax revenues. You, know, you can measure things in terms of dollars and percentages and so forth. Whereas, you know, land use regulation is just a lot more complicated. You know, how do you measure a regulation? You know, it's it's not that uh, uh, simple of of a thing because you know it, it's multifaceted, and so you know in our um, in, in the Wharton Residential Land Use um, uh, Regulation uh, uh, Index Survey, uh, uh, which uh, which we ran uh, in 2018, uh, and it was originally developed in, in 2006 um, by uh, by Joe uh, Jericho. Um, uh, and uh, Anita Summers, who just actually passed away, um, along with another congressman named Albert Saez. They, um, and in fact, Anita Summers actually Larry Summers is uh, a mother of all. Um, uh, as a fun fact, um, and really, just the goal is to you know measure, uh, you know, come up with a, a number of different criteria to measure how how stringent zoning is. And so, uh, you know, what we do is, you know, we ask different questions like, um, you know, how, how long does it take to get a housing permit approved? How many bodies, uh, governmental bodies, does, uh, you know, uh, do you have to go through in order to get a housing uh, permit? Do you have minimum lot sizes? Uh, do you have minimum lot size regulations? Do you have uh, height restrictions? Uh, do you have a ban on multifamily housing? Uh, you know, uh, these are the sorts of things uh, that um, uh, these are the sorts of questions that we ask, and then we just sort of average you know, across these questions, and uh, and we have a score sort of for each each municipality. Uh, and then what we do is we we then uh, you, know, you can take an average in a, uh, across a certain metro area. And so when you do that, you know you find that some of the most restricted places are, are largely places on the coast, and there's some caveats to that. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, in general, you know, you look at a place like Houston, for example, the, the Houston uh, doesn't have a zoning plan and, and they have relatively uh, relaxed uh, zoning regulations. Uh, and, and so in, in many respects, Houston sort of seems, uh, you know, it's a, um, it's sort of a, a model of what, um, what, what an economy looks like if, uh, if it has very uh, relaxed uh, zoning policies. Now, in, in terms of like measuring the you know the effects of these things, you know the argument uh, that like on, on economic output or things like GDP, you know the argument is that there's uh, you know some sort of misallocation of of talent and resources that's going on. That you know in an ideal world, you know housing would be affordable across all your cities, and that there would be uh, you know housing that that's built in response to increased demand to live in a certain in a certain neighborhood or in a certain area. So you think, you know, people want to move to the Bay Area because there's, you know, a big tech boom going on there like there has for the past, uh, you know, two and a half decades or so, uh, you know, that you know, there should be um, new housing uh, that is uh, built to accommodate that uh, that influx of, of, of people. 
in, in that uh, if, if you were actually able to um, have a more elastic housing supply, you know, you could get more people, say, you know, coming out of Ohio or Pennsylvania or uh, who, who would like to uh, move to San Francisco if it was more affordable and, and could find an opportunity there. Um, so, you know, it's that, you know, productivity loss, um, you know, the, you know, how those people, you know, they, they end up getting stuck somewhere else and, and, and couldn't move to that higher pro, uh, productivity area. Um, that's where uh, these uh, uh, sorts of, uh, of inefficiencies come from. Um, yeah. Have you, um, have you seen how, how well each of those factors correlate with price? And found which ones seem to be most predictive of uh, inflated prices. Well, yes. Yeah. So, so, like for example, if, if you look at housing prices, like in, uh, uh, the time series of, of housing prices in each metro area, uh, say over the past you know three decades or four decades or, or wherever have you, there's a very very clear pattern. Uh, if you look, you know, just across all the major metro U.S. areas, you, you basically have you know, the, the coastal markets, which are skyrocketing, uh, you know, the, the San Francisco's, Los Angeles's, the Boston's, New York's, Philadelphia's, DC's, Washington, DC's, which you know, have the most restrictive zoning land use regulations, according to our survey of, of these very municipalities. So we sent a survey to these actual, the, the people uh, running uh, these municipalities, running these actual zoning boards. Uh, that's where our survey data comes from. And it turns out that, you know, Areas that had the highest, most restrictive uh, uh, lanes regulations uh, tend to be these these places that that are just skyrocketing. So, if you look at all, all metro areas in the U.S., you basically have the coastal uh, markets, which have skyrocketing housing prices. You have uh, the sort of Midwest, which uh, uh, which ha you know definitely took a, a pretty big uh, uh, a toll in, in 2008 and, and slowly came back. It's the same story, essentially, in uh, uh, in the Sun Belt. Um, uh, you know, they, um, you know, the, certain areas of the Sun Belt had a very big run-up in, in 2007 and 2008. Uh, places like Phoenix, uh, Las Vegas, places that are, you know, arguably had a serious kind of housing bubble kind of thing, um, where it was very strange how quickly that the housing prices went up and then went down. Uh, and they took a long time to recover. It's only recently that they've started to recover uh, and, and start to really grow again um, uh, since the, the Great Recession of, of uh, 2000, 2009. So, so maybe that's, you could maybe make the case that sort of the Midwest housing markets uh, are, are a little bit different, uh, which haven't, you know, grown too much, are a little bit different from the Sun Belt uh, area, which, you know, kind of did a quick up and down and, and you know, slowly grown back. But but those are, are just, in a you know, they're like a category of their own compared to the coastal housing markets. It's basically, the coastal housing markets versus inland housing markets, uh, it, it, you know, by some approximation is just largely just a, a night and day in terms of uh, housing uh, affordability and housing prices in general. Uh, and, and you can see that, the, that there is sort of a, a night and day going thing also happening in, uh, in, in how tight those land use regulations are in, in housing growth and new permits and so forth. Yeah, even in my area, I, I'm in Virginia and I built houses. And looking at, at where to build, almost all of the question comes down to how much government issues am I going to have to deal with? And I mean, one place, one example, they had a two acre minimum 
And I called up the zoning department and said, hey, I noticed that just down the street, there's like a whole subdivision, which are built on, you know, small city lots. Is there any way that I could build more than one house on this little two acre lot? They said, oh, no. And I'm like, OK, but the other construction company, which is much larger, they can they can build it. And they went, well, yes. So <laughs> that was a that was to me an example of pretty horrifying corruption, which, of course, I, I let them know. Um, but who exactly is this benefiting? I mean, in my experience, it seems to be benefiting, um, you know, companies who are more politically powerful. Um, it's certainly benefiting uh, homeowners who already are in that area and enjoy seeing their home values get inflated. Um, but who else is, is uh, standing to benefit from the current system? You're absolutely right. There's uh, a very interesting political economy dynamic, which is this, uh, you know, essentially pits incumbent homeowners uh, against um, uh, non-homeowners or, or aspiring homeowners. Uh, so, you know, it, it's a very interesting uh, dynamic in the sense that, um, you know, th there is a certain lobby uh, or various lobbies that homeowners have. Um, and, um, and, and they're maybe somewhat uh, opposed, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, who is on sort of what side of, of this, like, you have some, you know, places like the, you know, home builders, for example, and developers, they, they want relaxed zoning because they want to be able to you know, build more development. And so uh, those folks are actually kind of on the side of, of these uh, non-incumbent, uh, uh, you know, aspiring homeowners. Um, but the, the homeowners uh, in general, you know, in, in the U.S., you have like 66% you know, of the population owns a home, right? And so, um, you know, roughly speaking. And, and so, um, you know, you're, you're, you're pitting two different types of people. And, you know, it's usually... You know, homeowners are, are older, more affluent people, uh, you know, potentially, you know, more politically powerful and, and so forth, uh, or have more political influence versus, uh, you know, aspiring younger, aspiring homeowners, uh, you know, who, who are poorer and younger. Um, and, and so it's a very interesting dynamic. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's very interesting, um, you know, obviously there's, you know, associated political groups and, and uh, on, on both sides. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting that in general in the U.S., uh, the sort of uh, issue of land use regulation and zoning reform has really been more um, taken up by like center left activists, uh, certain actors. I mean, and there's there's different shades of gray. I mean, there, there's some people who want uh, new public housing in uh, uh, largely only new public housing, so new government uh, housing. Um, rather than um, new, uh, you know, privately uh, built housing, right? Uh, which is, I think, what a lot of, uh, you know, say the libertarian or, or uh, you know, pro, th those sort of pro housing growth folks are. Um, and then largely um, because, you know, um, the Republican side, it, it's interesting because you do have a lot of homeowners. And so it, it really, so far at least, zoning reform, land use regulation reform hasn't really taken off too much on the Republican side. But what I think is interesting is if you look at, and, and I, I just wrote a, a National Review column um, th this past week, um, suggesting that, that uh, you know, Republican candidates uh, now and in the future try and 
uh, take up uh, land use uh, regulatory reform uh, and, uh, and as well as things like occupational licensing reform um, in the um, in, in sort of the years ahead because uh, in, in sort of citing what's going on in Canada right now where uh, you have an uh, ascendant uh, conservative politician that's doing extremely well in the polls uh, in Canada, uh, Pierre Polyev. And uh, you know, if the election were held today in Canada, he, he would win a majority uh, in, in, in a landslide election. And part of the reason why he's doing so well against Trudeau is that his uh, economic platform, or his, almost, most of his platform is largely centered on uh, uh, this uh, one issue uh, uh, of, uh, or one or two issues uh, of housing uh, supply, housing, um, a lack of housing affordability and uh, uh, you know, the same issue that we talked about. And he has proposed uh, uh, yeah, having a federal oversight over this issue by withholding infrastructure funds, federal infrastructure funds for municipalities that don't hit certain housing supply growth targets. And, um, and you know, you could say, well, maybe, you know, that, that's not uh, a very, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like a command, uh, a, a central command, uh, Kind of economy type thing but you know it, it's a funny thing because it's you've got sort of a big government local thing and the idea is that this would be a way to um uh, to at least change the incentives on the part of these municipalities uh you know who, who largely are you know are controlled or influenced by incumbent homeowners right uh you know uh, uh who, who are the people that vote uh in in you know municipal elections for say you know local zoning boards and so forth i mean it's the homeowners right largely um, you know, so obviously, you know, renters can vote too, but often, you know, homeowners outnumber um, renters in, in, in many, many uh, you know, areas. So what the Pierre Polyev story, I think, is, is quite interesting because uh, he is winning younger voters a two to one versus, uh, uh, say, you know, Trudeau, um, uh, who, who has been uh, slow to sort of get on this um, housing supply, uh, housing unaffordability issue in Canada. Canada is actually... Is a, you think uh, you know the, the Bay Area and, and New York City and, and the coastal real estate markets in the U.S. are are expensive. Uh, you know, you really have to look to Canada to see how how uh, how it's even worse. You know, and it's crazy because uh, you know they have so much land, um, but despite this, they you know Canada has the highest price to income ratio, second highest price to income ratio in the OECD. So you know places like Vancouver and Toronto are certainly expensive and and just about as expensive as New York City or, or San Francisco in some cases worse. And so uh, it's a huge issue. Um, in, in Canada, unlike the U.S., it doesn't have, uh, you know, quite as many uh, rural, um, uh, you know, smaller towns and so forth. So it's um, a lot of people, a lot of younger people in Canada think that, you know, they'll never be able to afford a home. Um, you know, the, the home that I grew up in, uh, in, in, uh, in the Toronto suburbs, um, uh, you know, my parents bought when I was born nearly uh, 34 years ago. Uh, they bought it for about $250,000 or so. Uh, and, and it's now worth, uh, uh, I think, uh, that same house is worth nearly uh, $2 million today. And that's only in the span of 33, 34 years. And that's sort of what speaks to what, you know, uh, uh, you know the power of constrained housing supply is. Um, some provincial politicians have started to get this in, in, uh, in, uh, in this part of Canada. And some... Some local politicians uh, are starting to get this in the U.S. Um, you know, places like um, you know, Minneapolis have, have tried uh, uh, to implement a, a pro-housing growth uh, plan, the Minneapolis 2040 plan. 
Uh, there's been some attempts uh, in the California legislature uh, to um, to shift. Um, you know, California is extremely, extremely uh, 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 tight housing supply and, and, and strict land use regulations. Uh, they're trying to uh, enable the, just the construction of duplexes alone was a huge shift uh, or the start of a shift uh, a couple of years ago. And there's some in the California Senate who are sort of very dedicated to this particular issue. And there, there's uh, there are quite a few um, uh, yes in my backyard or NIMBY activists in, uh, in California, particularly uh, who are influential in Sacramento. Um, but, you know, I feel like, you know, these are very uh, initial steps, but I do think that it is uh, uh, an area that, uh, politically speaking, you know, can win over a lot of young um, voters um, because it affects, uh, you know, people who, uh, you know, are, are, are low income who who don't have access to these opportunities, but would you know would like to have uh, uh, cheaper housing uh, in order, uh, uh, you know, to be able to move uh, to. Uh, uh, th these higher productive areas and, and uh, to, to continue to live in, in these, uh, you know, uh, higher productive areas and, and not be afraid that, you know, if you lose your job in New York or San Francisco, mm -hmm. suddenly you have to move away and you have to move out of the city because you, know, you just can't afford, uh, you know, three four $4,000 a month rent anymore. So um, that, that uh, I, I think uh, is an interesting political thing uh, that, that's sort of been, uh, uh, happening in Canada and, and, and one way that we can sort of try and tackle the, these sorts of issues is, you know, largely through, I think, state preemption, which uh, enables states to have power over uh, municipalities and uh, giving more power to, to the state uh, or to states um, to um, uh, you know, preempt uh, land use regulatory changes, I think, is, is sort of the right step forward. And, uh, and the federal government, too, you know, uh, uh, you know, sort of evidenced by the in Canada that have been sort of successful uh, or, or, you know, or could come into being soon um, uh, are, you know, this idea that, you know, say the U.S. federal government could, you know, withhold federal infrastructure funds for municipalities that are not, you know, hitting housing supply growth targets. Yeah, it's amazing. There's very few issues which you can quite legitimately make the argument um, from the left or from the, the right. And I think this is one of them. I mean, if you want to put your liberal hat on, you can talk about wealth inequality from zoning and land use policies. You can talk about how you're removing the opportunity for people to get ahead because they can't live in areas that they would like to work. Um, you can talk about how it's, uh, you know, causing, you know, problems with 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 the young in general and, and, and poorer people to get any housing. You commonly hear from the left, Oh, housing is a human right. It's like, okay, great. Well, this is how we get more housing. And then from the more right-leaning side, it's also a slam dunk. I mean, people should be free to use their property, their land, uh, as they deem fit, so long as there aren't any grievous negative externalities. Um, we believe in free markets and purveying good, high-quality, and low-cost goods. So we got to use them. This is a command and control model that's certainly hurting the public welfare. Um, so either way, this should be a politically winning issue. Um, and I'm kind of surprised it's not the U.S., though I'm very encouraged that it is in Canada. I think eventually people are going to hit their, their breaking point with this. I know many people who are absolutely stumped how they're going to afford housing. 
um, cause rents are going to begin to rise as well, especially after, um, um, after the, you know, the, the high rates have kind of been digested and, 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 uh, variable rates are starting to climb up and people are, are, are flipping the housing stock and, and, and it's, it's going to get to a fever pitch at some point. Um, so it's, it's very positive. We have some type of political movement, um, older people. Yeah, they they stand to lose. You know, people who saw their house go from two hundred and fifty thousand to two million, that could uh, that could hurt. But you know, more, I don't know. I hope that we could appeal to those voters too and say, listen, we're talking about the welfare of your kids and grandkids here. Mm-hmm. Like, don't you want them to be able to afford a home? I know it's awesome. You have a ton of equity in this city and in this house, and that's great. And we, we, we're not trying to destroy it, but like your grandkids can't afford to form a family like you did. Do you think that's fair? And I think most people would, would understand that maybe that windfall didn't come from, uh, didn't come from something they did, but it came from a movement of funds because of a variety of government regulations, which are, are, you know, putting the cost on the young and uh, on the newly immigrating and um, giving it to the people who happen to already own a home. Like, that's just kind of a, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a winning issue on all sides. I, I, I fully agree. You know, it's an interesting political economy dynamic. And, and I think it's not uh, dissimilar. Uh, I think it's similar to you know, the whole entitlement issue in, in the U.S. and uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security you know, Social Security, you know, and, uh, you know, there's just complete aversion uh, to any kind of uh, reform, um, you know, to entitlements, you know, especially from, you know, the, the baby boomer generation. So I think it's, it's a similar, uh, similar dynamic in that, um, you know, incumbent homeowners, older incumbent home- homeowners don't want to give up, um, you know, their, their housing gains, um, even if that means um, making housing more affordable for others. And you know, there's some people, um, you know, that make an argument that, you know, in the long run, both the older incumbent homeowners uh, will, will, will be better off as well, uh, even with relaxed zoning that may, in the short term, uh, push down their, uh, their housing equity and their housing, uh, and housing prices today. Um, but what will happen in the long run is that you'll get, you know, higher productive area, you know, more productive uh, metropolitan area that they'll be living in uh, that, uh, you know, ultimately um, will, uh, will benefit uh, them uh, in a variety of ways, you know, more opportunities. Um, and, and so, you know, if you're, say, Generation X, you know, uh, and you still have, uh, you know, uh, still some, you know, some decades, uh, maybe left in your career, um, you know, that you would sort of maybe benefit from having these younger people move in and, you know, uh, invent new companies and, um, and, and, uh, you know, contribute to the economy, that there would be spillover effects from that, that would, uh, that would help the incumbent owner, homeowners as well. So there's, um, the, you know, there, there's an argument there as well. So what about just the crass solution of paying those people? <laughs> so we say, all right, guys, here's the deal. We're going to open up a bunch of um, a bunch of housing. We're going to get rid of the minimum lot sizes. We're going to get rid of the height restrictions. Um, we're going to fast track applications. We're going to allow for duplexes, triplexes, multifamily, 
Um, yeah, we're going to do all those things and we're not going to be the arbiters of style. We're going to allow people to build um, what they wish to build, what they believe the market um, desires for them to build. However, it's going in right near your neighborhood, maybe even on your street. So you get a, a new entrance dividend and uh, yeah, we'll pay you. Like, like I, I don't know. Like, I wonder if that would, I know there have been people who have put forth that solution. Um, what do you think about that? Just saying, hey, we're not getting enough political motion. Maybe we just need to uh, strike a deal here. What they're looking for is, in large part, an economic advantage. What if we gave it to them? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, you know in, a, in an era of high debt and, uh, you know, not a ton of uh, you know, fiscal space, arguably, um, maybe it's, I think, a hard a hard sell to uh, to start, uh, uh, you know, compensating um, uh, incumbent homeowners. Uh, but it, it's an interesting idea. Um, yeah, I don't know um, how how generous it would have to be. Um, you know, would it be a one-time thing versus a recurring thing? Uh, you know, I think it, it's an interesting question. I think it's uh, uh, it's it's a complicated uh, question as well, but it, it, it's interesting. Maybe it could work. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, and you sort of have to, there's a lot of moving pieces to that. You know, there's the compensation, there's, you know, what exactly was, you know, the predicted hit to their equity, what's, you know, the predicted sort of gains allowing those, um, that new housing construction to happen. And, what what's the overall gain from that? You know, are there spillover effects? It's a, it's a very complicated, you know, economic calculation. You know, what what the effects are of that and what the costs are of that. So it's a, I think I think it's a it's a hard one. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, in a way, I would hate to do it, but on the other hand, it's like, well, you know what? Sometimes we just have to do what's politically expedient. Um, you know, thinking about one of the local cities near me, um, I've looked at building in Charlottesville, Virginia. And uh, boy, it's it's an absolute nightmare. Um, most of the empty lots, if you can find one that you can build on, easily going to be two hundred and fifty thousand easily. And utilities about twenty five thousand. Um, the time to get a permit through months and months and months away. Um, but if all of a sudden they said, you know what, we're going to allow for a duplex on that same lot, well then that almost cuts my cost in half for land. Um, at that point, I've saved, say, $250,000. Boy, that one small change is an enormous benefit. So although it, it, it seems a bit, a bit expensive to be paying off the incumbents, um, $10,000 to every house in the surrounding area, um, that's a drop in the bucket compared to a builder having to buy an entirely um, additional lot. That's, yeah, that, that's uh, that's a, a great point. Absolutely. Well, so what other political strategies can you think of? Um, or are there ones which are in the works that will actually lessen zoning and make housing more affordable? What, what do you think is on the table as far as getting stuff through? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, really, I think, um, really, I, I do think that, you know, state preemption, uh, you know, federal government preemption, you know, using uh, things like, you know, withholding infrastructure funds um, unless uh, certain municipalities improve housing growth numbers. 
uh, or you know, relax uh, you know, certain housing regulations. Uh, I, I think that's really the the most uh, viable uh, you know, political strategy or policy strategy um, to this. Because you know, you've got all these municipalities. You know, you've got incumbent homeowners and and they and uh, their interests. Um, but how do you uh, you know, how do you really impact that? And um, I, I think it's got to come from you know, either state or, or, or federal preemption. Um, and and, uh, and, and you know, states and, and federal governments using um, uh, you know, the, the sort of purse strings in some ways, but for, in particular, you know, uh, federal infrastructure funds which go to municipalities. So I, I think that's the most promising uh, approach. And, and I think you look at you know, uh, that there have been some, you know, democratic governments uh, or some liberal governments uh, in, uh, in in the states that, that have had some success so far. Uh, you know, you look at the conservatives in Canada uh, and, and their success. I, I, I think, uh, you know, scaling up those sorts of uh, policy strategies is, is uh, the, the best path forward. So how do you sell that to your average voter? Because I'd imagine many people would go, wait a minute, you're taking the power to decide how our community will look and how we're going to live from my local government. And you want to bring it all the way to the state or even worse, the federal government. I mean, I get we're kind of having a you know tragedy of the commons problem now where every individual locality has a vested interest in pumping up their own real estate prices. But like, is the solution really to concentrate that power in the hands of the state or the federal government? What, what if they abuse it? I mean, sure, some of their incentives aren't as bad as the localities, but they might lack the um, that granular view of what communities look like and, and make poor zoning decisions when when um, that could have been avoided. What, what would you say to a, a would be voter like that? Well, it's a great question. And, um, you know, it's. Uh... It's a very, uh, it's a very difficult political economy problem. You know, it's like, how do you solve the, you know, the entire, you know, I think the entitlements analogy is a great one. You know, it's like, you have, you know, very uh, concentrated benefits. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's similar to, you know, uh, any entitlement program in general. You, you have very concentrated benefits, and this is an exclusive to. Uh, you know, Medicare and, and, and Social Security uh, either, but, you know, anytime you pass some sort of like concentrated benefit uh, it's, uh, that has diffused costs, it's always difficult to, to, you know, to repeal it, right? Oh, yeah. So it, it's a similar kind of issue, I think. It's just, you know, very, very difficult. I, I think, uh, you know, sure, like anytime you, know, you give federal government or state government power, you know, there's always room for uh, abuse. Um, yeah, it, it's difficult, you know, in terms of, you know, how you know, political strategies get good policy agendas through. It, it's always, uh, it's, it's always a bit challenging because, you know, things like, um, for some reason, you know, things like policy substitutes um, just don't seem to, um, you know, be um, things that can get done politically. It's a very interesting question, and, and I'm not quite sure why. Um, but, you know, like, for example, you know, is it possible to have a, a, a carbon tax uh, and pass a carbon tax with a carbon dividend? Right. This is a, this idea that, you know, like, you know, carbon should be taxed, but, you know, there, there should be, um, uh, you know, some, uh, uh, you know, the, the taxation, uh, the taxes from you know, taxing, uh, you know, high emitters or, or, or have you, you know, should be refunded to 
uh, uh, you know, th those uh, uh, you know, to the to the people, uh, um, and, and so like that's just impossible for some reason to get done. You know, there's places that pass carbon taxes, but you don't really see um, you know the, the the other side, you know, the carbon dividend side of, of it. And you know, similarly, I like I think it's just it's it's very difficult uh, to you know, for example, this idea of you know compensating people. Um, in exchange for you know land use uh, you know regulatory uh, relief you know compensating the uh, uh, the incumbent homeowners it's, it's just really really difficult uh, you know to to make it happen and then um, uh, you know uh, uh, similarly I think just you know, at, uh, at the at the state federal levels I think um, you know, you sort of just need to have something that is is uh, very straightforward and, and that is you know rethinking how, how to use uh you know federal infrastructure funds or or uh you know states sort of um looking at you know zoning plans and and, and going after uh you know excessively tight land use regulations I, I think uh it kind of you know it's such a huge issue that at some level uh you know you need some sort of like i, I think a, a a policy that is a policy response that that's substantial, uh, that may even be a blunt policy response um, uh, to, to, to counter such, such a big issue to begin with. So are you familiar with the push for the so-called 15-minute uh, cities, speaking of um, errant zoning policy? I, I'm not. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, um, it, it's kind of an idea that, that, that actually we should go entirely the other way and that we should make like these smaller planned cities and communities where we ensure that everything that somebody would need is within 15 minutes, typically of on foot. Um, so I guess if you're not terribly familiar, we won't get into it, but there seems to be a little bit of political activity in the absolute opposite direction at the time. And strangely, it's also coming from the left. So although there's groups like I believe the Brookings Institute is generally on our side about loosening, um, loosening uh, various regulations. You also see this popping up quite often, um, looking for extreme control over certain local communities, uh, often with environmental objectives. Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, the left is always a bit tough on housing. Um, you know, sometimes ideas sound good, but, uh, you know, it, it's a bit, uh, I, I, I think, you know, if you look at like a lot of these land use regulation issues, for example, you know, a, a lot of them are related to, um, you know, environmental um, type uh, restrictions. And um, if you look, for example, at I think, you know, you have a great uh, a case of, um, uh, you know, in California of, of uh, what, what's called the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA, which is um, uh, basically a, a state version of the uh, National Environmental Policy Act or, or NEPA. And, and these are things that were passed in, in the very, very early 1970s, but um, uh, in sort of the beginning of the, the early, you know, sort of environmental uh, era push, which is, you know, radically uh, changed uh, in in in, uh, in 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 heightened and in, in changing character uh, in, in, over the past couple of decades um, in, in sort of response uh, in, in been used to sort of uh, you know 
combat uh, uh, you know climate change and so uh, or, or that's that's how the, these uh, things have been uh, have been weaponized uh, so much so that you know uh, they want to prevent construction of new housing um, and, and so what happens is like you have instances like at the University of California Berkeley where there was uh, essentially a, a lawsuit that was brought uh, under um, under the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA, uh, that um, that alleged that you know Berkeley you know uh, was in violation of, of CEQA um, by having all these student apartments on campus, and so um, what happened is um, you know Berkeley nearly rescinded, I believe, like several thousand offers to students um, uh, about a year or two ago. Um, because of this, uh, this nimbyism, or this not in my backyard, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, initiative or, or loss of those coming from one person living near the campus. And uh, ultimately, it, it got such big headlines that uh, the, the California state legislature actually intervened and, and passed legislation uh, to override the, uh, the California Environmental Quality Act or CEQA. Um, but what's happened is, you know, um, you know, there, there's been different sort of phases of, of zoning in different ways, land use regulations. Um, you know, we talked about height restrictions, minimum lot sizes. We talked about, um, uh, you know, bans on, on multifamily housing, things like that. Um, but there's also like a, a, a lot of environmental um, policies as well, which um, uh, uh, which make housing also more uh, 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 scarce and, and unaffordable. Um, so, so you know, there, there's all, you know, there's all sorts of, uh, I would say, strange policy, you know, housing uh, ideas on the left. You know, I think there's some, uh, some interesting urban initiatives. And, you know, there's all these questions about, you know, how, to what degree should we, you know, have more walking space and things like that. I mean, I, I think these are interesting questions. Um, you know, what's the role of the, you know, pedestrian versus, you know, cars and and what, you know, what's how much congestion should we have and, and so forth. But, uh, but I, I think uh, you know, uh, the, the whole housing issue is just a, a, a much more broader issue. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of environmental policy uh, is, is uh, a huge part of the housing uh, uh, affordability problem. Um, that, that's something that's not recognized uh, nearly enough as it should be. Absolutely. And it's difficult to put a price on certain environmental uh, issues. I mean, it's a little bit easier for something like carbon because you can look at, um, you know, either carbon capture or carbon mitigation or, or et cetera. But I mean, when you're looking at things like, um, I don't know, a wetland being in an area, it's difficult to price that. That's got to be a, a local political decision more than strictly an economic decision, though it certainly has economic um, repercussions. Um, I, but, uh, yeah, you know, another solution that's popped up, I was in, um, San Diego a while ago and what seemed to be, uh, fairly popular were, I think they call them grandma suites or, or mother-in-law houses or something. Basically the idea that on your, uh, lot, you can build a small, typically around 1000 square foot secondary structure and you could have family, friends, or even just sell it. And uh, that seems to give the benefit to the current homeowner. So it's fairly politically popular um, amongst homeowners. But also it provides some amount of reasonably low cost uh, housing to people who might be moving in. 
And it certainly expands the housing supply. If everybody did it, it would double it, presumably. Um, what do you think about stuff like that? And how popular has that become in other cities? I, I think it, you know, it totally depends on, on the city. Um, you know, I, I don't know quite, you know, enough uh, about it uh, at the you know, particular city level. I, I think, you know, the, there, there can be many different solutions, you know, and, and I think, uh, you know, I think it, it is a very municipality dependent kind of thing, you know, uh, in, in say, you know, places like DC and San Francisco, you know, maybe the, the idea is, you know, we, we need to, uh, you know, end height restrictions and finally let, you know, builders in Washington, DC build taller than the Washington monument or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in, in San Francisco, allow more areas, um, more neighborhoods to build, uh, denser housing. Um, uh, you know, uh, so you know, is in some areas, I think, you know, maybe density is the answer. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, and the height restrictions in some areas, maybe it's, uh, you know, uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, further developing, um, you know, outward, more sprawl. Um, you know, maybe uh, there's environmental restrictions that um, you know prevent um, uh, the the outgrowth of uh, of an urban area. Um, you know, maybe it's uh, you know allowing multifamily housing to be built. You know, you just have massive, massive amounts of neighborhoods, uh, which uh, you know were built over the 20th century, uh, where it's like nothing but uh, you know single family housing in many many suburbs. Uh, and so, you know, changing zoning laws to allow you know, some multifamily, you know, duplexes, um, townhouses, other multifamily arrangements to to exist. Um, so, so there's different, uh, or, or you know, look at places like you know, maybe you're part of Northern Virginia or or uh, or Connecticut, um, and um, you know, ending you know uh, two acre zoning and, and allowing more plots and uh, uh, more uses of, of a given uh, a piece of land or 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 changing you know, the purpose of a, a piece of land, looking at like a zoning plan and, and repurposing existing areas that were, you know, meant for, you know, maybe commercial uses to, to residential uses. So I think there's a lot of different uh, uh, ways in which we uh, we need to change zoning and, uh, and, and land use regulations to accommodate further, uh, uh, further housing growth. But I, I think, uh, I, I really think that it, it can't, it's often a municipality dependent uh, type of uh, optimal response. Gotcha. Well, let's uh, well let's wrap up with um, letting the listeners know where they can find your work, all the stuff you're working on. You also have a podcast, I would add. Um, so yeah, let people know uh, where can they find you. Well, uh, you can find me. Um, uh, I'm I'm fairly active on on Twitter, uh, or or I guess it's now called X. Um, uh, my, my handle there is, uh, uh, John J O N, uh, underscore Hartley underscore. Um, you can visit my website, uh, jonathanhartley.net, uh, where all my academic research, uh, and, and op-eds are, are posted. I, I write fairly regularly, uh, for uh, the national review, uh, and, uh, from time to time at other outlets like, uh, the wall street journal. Um, and, and in general, um, in, uh, uh, have a regular podcast uh, episodes. My podcast is, is called the Capitalism and Freedom in the 21st Century Podcast. Um, it, it, it's uh, uh, named after the, uh, 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 there's a funny, uh, fun take on uh, the uh, 1962 book by Milton Friedman, Capitalism and Freedom, and the Thomas Piketty 
2013 book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century. And so I, I, with the, I, I bring on a guest in each episode and we, we talk about uh, you know, a particular uh, set of issues and, and, and that, uh, uh, that usually economist or policy professional's career just like this episode, uh, it, you know, very similar. We usually, uh, you know, focus in on, uh, on on one or two topics and, and get into the weeds of all these things. So uh, really appreciate uh, uh, you, you bringing me on and, and uh, uh, would love uh, any uh, comments. Uh, we'll welcome any comments uh, from your fans and uh, um, and any thoughts uh, they may have on, on these issues or, or other issues too. I do a lot of uh, academic research, not just on zoning, but on occupational licensing, um, on uh, on um, uh, some areas of education, uh, things like uh, income share agreements. Um, I'm, I'm starting uh, the process of doing some work on, on school choice or universal school vouchers as well. So all things that I think are, are important. Uh, these are many of these issues are actually very important to, to Milton Freeman. But I think ultimately uh, all all of these things are are really about um, how do we rethink um, certain government policies. Um, to uh, enable uh, economic mobility, um, particularly for those uh, you know, below uh, uh, the median income. How do we help the poor um, uh, to advance economically and what, what barriers uh, exist uh, for those who do want to advance uh, economically, you know, whether it's uh, zoning, you know, occupational licensing, you know, li licensing in general, uh, uh, very disproportionately impacts uh, uh, low-income individuals. Um, uh, and, and obviously, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the absurdly high cost of, of uh, secondary education is a huge issue as well. You know, the, just tons and tons of, of uh, crippling student debt up there. Um, all of these, I think, contribute to uh, you know, cost of living and uh, impediments, uh, you know, largely government uh, you know, impediments to uh, economic mobility. Well, you're definitely speaking my language with a bunch of those topics. School choice, I think, is enormously important. And I'm thrilled that that's getting a little bit of traction. Um, and yeah, occupational licensing. Um, that's one that nobody really talks about, but really does change the uh, change the landscape for somebody coming out of high school. Like, how are you going to make a living? Um, my goodness, I work with a, a lot of builders, a couple subcontractors. And you ask an, an old crusty electrician or plumber what they had to do to get their plumbing license. And they'll go, what do you mean? <laughs> like nothing. I don't know. Maybe, I don't even remember. Somebody just gave it to me. I gave them 50 bucks and I was on my way. But today it's years of school, um, years of being a very low paid apprentice. Um, it, the, we've really cut off the bottom rungs of the ladder for a variety of people, not just with with high cost of housing, but with limiting people's employment options and by trapping people in schools, which don't prepare them for, don't prepare them for the job world and don't prepare them for life. Absolutely. Well, on that terrible disappointment, <laughs> I, I guess we'll, we'll wrap it on up. Thanks so much for joining me, John. I appreciate it. Thanks so much uh, for having me. It's been a, a wonderful, a wonderful opportunity to talk with you. Wonderful. Thanks.